Love War. Welcome to the Love War Podcast. As always, we're Grant and Brian, one of us a professional musician, pastor, and recovering pastor's kid, the other a media and public relations expert, a writer, and a pop culture aficionado. I hate the way that you emphasized expert there. Like that's that, it's a, a very loose term. Expert. <laughs> I don't think it's loose. I think it's very I think it's true, man. Expert. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. How's your new year going so far? Uh, it's going good. Yeah. Um, some cool ideas. I'm not really a resolution guy. Yeah, we talked, we talked about that last night. About. I asked Graham what his New Year's resolutions were, and he's like, yeah, none. I, yeah, I, I, to me, it's just like, hey, you know, I should, um, I should get my crap together. I really should get my crap together and, um, you know, do something. I, I, feel, like, I feel like I've... Um, fallen behind of I think everything and you know uh, what though like we're doing something right now so that's, we are that's doing pretty good right, right? Now. yeah it is it is the step in the right direction and it's the fir- first podcast of the new year so that's pretty cool yeah it is awesome absolutely what about um I, I just yeah I think I, I just want to be a better um it sounds so cliche I want to be a better version of myself but I just you know I have some like to like I decided and I've always been like a gym guy, you know, it's not like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm not like a fair weather, but you know, gym guy, but I've always been a gym guy, but like this year I'm actually going to, you know, do it. I've always been like a three, you know, three days a week, but, uh, I think this year I'm just going to, um, I'm going to be one of those guys that just starts, uh, you know, taking selfies in their underwear and, uh, showing off the abs and stuff. I think that's what I'm going to do. I think that's one of my goals this, um, Literally nobody is looking forward to that except for me, but that, that sounds awesome. Good for you. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I, I have a legitimate new year's resolution cause I, um, I'm, I'm very self deprecating. And so my new year's resolution is to be less down on myself all the time. And, there you go. and my, yeah. my wife is always like, you gotta like, you gotta be kinder to yourself. So that's, that's my new year's resolution is I'm going to be kinder to myself. We'll see how that, that works out. One. Cause I'm a jerk. <laughs> I think you're one of the nicest guys ever. I, I, yeah, I don't, yeah, that is, but that is a great, um, that is a great, resolution how do you how do you actually like what are tangibly what does that look like for you yeah i make fun of myself a lot so i'm gonna stop Mm. doing that (laughs) Mm. and um and there's there's this thing this like uh sort of shift I need to make in my thinking where uh, I think that I'm making mistakes all the time and I need to look at my mistakes in a more generous fashion and because like, and it's good, I think, especially for Christians to know where we're falling short of what God has for us. But like, I take it to the complete negative extreme. And so to, to not do that and to do the opposite of that, that's, that's my goal to be a little bit more generous with myself and my mistakes. That's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I, I always think, and maybe that's why I'm like, Hey, I want to, you know, I always feel like I'm not producing enough things. Like I'm not creating enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not working hard enough. Like I'm always coming underneath my potential such such a dangerous um 
beginning of something dangerous there, but I always, I always feel like, um, like, um, I should be doing more. That's how it starts though. That's how you start yeah. to beat yourself up. Yeah. And then you get into this place where I've been, which is all, you know, is beating yourself up and you can't mm. do that. S- yeah. Speaking of beating yourself up. So, um, you mentioned something at the tail end of the last podcast, which is going yep. to uh, sort of introduce us to this next podcast. Uh, and today we're going to be concentrating primarily on um, depression and addiction, but through the lens of this piece that Rolling Stone just put out a couple of days ago, and we'll introduce you to that in a little bit. But Grant, at the end of our last podcast, was talking about uh, one of the things that my wife did to sort of enhance my spirits a little bit. And, and she set up this really cool thing where there's this tattoo that I've been meaning to get and I just never got around to it. And it's uh, a tattoo that was, I, I don't want to say that was, that somebody had. I, I like to talk about tattoos in, in terms of being worn by somebody. So there's a tattoo that was worn by Scott Hutchison from Frightened Rabbit. Um, and it's kind of uh, like a, a cross, but with two crossbars instead of one. And um, and so Scott Hutchison took his own life, like we talked about in the last podcast, uh, in the spring of last year. And he was a huge influence on me and on my thinking and on my uh, sort of emotional life. At any rate, without going too far into the weeds on it, um, this is a tattoo that I was thinking about getting for quite some time just to remind myself to take care of myself and to, as Scott Hutchison said in one of Frightened Rabbit's songs, to make tiny changes to Earth. And Becky, my wife, decided to uh, crowdfund the tattoo for me. Not because like I, we lacked the money to get me a tattoo or anything like that, but just because she thought that it would be meaningful if every time I looked at myself and every time I looked at my arm and the tattoo, that it would remind me that I have so many people rooting for me. And Grant is one of those people, actually, who, um, who funded the tattoo. And so that was a really cool and, and sort of special thing to me. Um, and it's been a huge boon to me in, in my walk with the depression and anxiety that we talked about a few uh, podcasts ago. The other thing that I found out, found out since that podcast... Um, through seeing various medical professionals and uh, really trying to get my mental health in order and take care of myself is that I have not only major depressive disorder, which is MDD, that's um, the, uh, not acronym, but the, the abbreviation, but uh, I also have bipolar 2 disorder. So bipolar disorder and bipolar 2, they're... Um, four different types of disorders in the bipolar spectrum. And what bipolar 2 means is that I have really low lows, not um, so much the manic highs that characterize what people think about when they think about traditional bipolar disorder. But that diagnosis has been awesome for me. It's nice to know where where I am, where I'm coming from, and uh, it's just kind of a relief for me to know that here's what's going on with me. There's a name yeah, for it. 
explain yeah explain i think it was a lot of people that don't understand that like you just said um hey it's been nice for me um that you know that gives me a lot of peace almost that you know why yeah, yeah. Like somebody somebody would hear a diagnosis and they would freak him out why does that why does that um why does that comfort you in a way yeah it's nice to um and i I use this phrase jokingly sometimes, but it's it's kind of nice to name it and claim it, to like mm. understand what it is, to say mm-hmm. this is what I'm dealing with, and to know that there are strategies that are involved with this very specific thing. And so that's yeah. it's been extremely helpful to me. Mm. It it's just, I, I know when you I know when you said that to me the first time, it was it was a little startling because you know you don't. You don't hear that often, and I'm, you know, it's, I'm not, because uh, whenever you hear diagnosis, you're like, oh, you know, it's a, almost like there's this, uh, it freaks you out a little bit, but. Yeah, you think of the was, C word, right? You think of cancer, you think yeah, of, you yeah. S- anything like that, right? Something terminal or whatever, and when you said that, you're like, I just feel, I feel so much better, I feel, you know, and I was just, you, you know, I, I, I had to, it, I sat on it for a little bit, you know, trying to, you know, understand that, um, why something like that, like you have this make you, makes you feel that. But I started to, you know, I started to hear, you know, think about what you were saying. Like there's an, there's a, there's a way, like, I think you almost put it like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not by myself kind of a thing. Like there's a, there's a few things that kind of go yeah, along yeah, with that. Yeah. There's a way forward and there's right. like, I, I take great comfort in knowing that what I'm going through isn't unique to me, that there are people who have gone through it. Um, A number of, and I I don't love to talk about like success in terms of like what the world gives us, but there are a lot of people who have had great worldly success who have gone through the exact same thing. So Mm -hmm. that's, that is comforting to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. So we were talking about, uh, something that I sent you last night about uh, an article in Rolling Stone that covered a, the life and early death of a musician who started out as a Christian musician. His name was is Richard Swift and started out in the Christian market, started out uh, alongside a lot of names that you and I and a lot of people know Damien Gerardo, Starflyer 59 worked with David Bazan um, Pedro the Lion and uh, lost his life because he was abusing alcohol and eventually contracted alcoholic hepatitis and decided that he didn't want to undergo any therapy for it he just wanted to from what the article said um, dialysis was very, very difficult for him and and uh, just wanted to sort of let it run its natural course, mm. which is very sad, and the yeah. article is very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but Grant and I were talking a lot about the Christian music industry and whether or not the Christian music industry, and I don't want to say like primes people or primed people for that kind of self-destruction, but um, the Christian music industry was and is still an industry and has all of the negative consequences that you would expect from 
being part of a large media conglomerate and um, being a part of something that's that's big and that's popular and that people are are taking part in, listening to, spending their money buying tickets to go see concerts. And you, I think, have a, a pretty unique insight into that because not only are you uh, a musician, pastor, a recovering pastor's kid, but you've spent some time in that world. A little bit, not as much as you know a lot of people, but a little bit. Um, I think that yeah, it's it's taken it really, especially recently, it's taken some interesting swings. Um, back and forth. Now, when he was like when when Swift was in there, I mean, there was that was basically. I think that was probably some of the its biggest time. I mean, it was the golden era for Christian <clears throat> rock music and Christian indie music yeah. um, before it, really, yeah, it, it was, was before it was sort of taken over the industry by the worship fad. I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's funny because, um, I, I was so, I didn't know, but I didn't know that, you know, you know, Richard Swift, he was a, he was a worship leader. He was, I mean, he did some stuff with promise keepers in like, I guess, 96 to 98 or 97, 98, something like that at it, at the, at promise keepers height. And do you um, want to explain I mean, what that, promise keepers is real quick? Um, yeah, Promise Keepers, it was a, um, a movement of basically of, um, um, it was like a parachurch thing, um, of men that would just encourage men to be better men, um, better husbands, um, uh, be able to treat their family better, better followers of Christ. It came under a lot of attack thinking that it was just like a very, um, what's the term? It, it, it was it was it male a, geared. It, it was got, masculine. And exactly. It got a lot of flack for just you know like I, I remember actually there was I mean I went to a couple of them and there was women protesting outside like that it was like like it was some kind of you know women stay in the kitchen movement or something right like anti women's you know rights I mean? like, kind of thing. And it wasn't like that at all. It was actually different. It was just like a like men need to you know you know do what they need to do to take care of their families and you know, be better Christ followers. They've had some of the best pastors and speakers ever, but, um, he, you know, they filled stadiums. So there was tons and tons of events nationally, even internationally of filling stadiums of thousands and thousands and thousands of men, um, football stadiums. So they had some serious, serious influence at that point. And, and, uh, Richard Swift was one of their worship leaders with, with a few of their events. Um, and that's, you know, he, he had, I think he was on, he was, I mean, he, he produced a ton of stuff, but he, he ran with that, um, like the Pacific Northwest crew, like, uh, the tooth and nail crew and, yeah, yeah. um, all those guys were like, you know, and at that point was, it was just thriving like Christian music, at least what it looked like, what it was producing Christian music was thriving. And, um, it seemed like, and uh, not to cut in, but like that was that was really good stuff um, that that stands the test of time. I mean, Richard Swift's fingerprints are all over a lot of great indie records of the last mm-hmm. few years, um, the last decade. We're talking um, 
Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking the Black Keys, the Shins. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. these these artists are uh, still revered um, and still listened to, and still. Uh, I mean, the Shins are essentially indie royalty. You know, yeah. up there with Death yeah. Cab for Cutie, um, yep. uh, bands like that. Like the 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 stuff that Richard Swift touched was was gold. But mm-hmm. even in the Christian music industry, Starflyer Fifty Nine, David Bazan, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, his act Pedro the Lion. Mm-hmm. This is stuff that that uh, reached a Christian market, but that was also inexplicably, inexplicably um, sort of well received by the indie music crowd of the time too. And that's that's yeah. a very hard barrier to cross, because you can it is. you can be you know DC Talk had some crossover hits, and they're probably the most influential Christian band in terms of being an explicit Christian band. But mm-hmm. in the indie music industry, it's a little bit harder to gain that respect and to gain that following. And Richard Swift had his hands in all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, the the thing that it it, it came, it, it's just it came back to, and it always does. Is um, I can keep drawing it back to just um, just the whitewashed nature of a lot of Christian art. Like when you like in the indie scene, you can um, you were allowed to question things that you were struggling with. You were allowed to question your faith and ask those questions when you were when you were on a major label. Um, in the Christian industry, you couldn't really do that outwardly, or if you did, you had to really overcrowd it with a solution. And um, there was plenty of guys that that's not where they were writing from. They wanted to do an entire album on, you know, um, on conflict. And in with Christian art, there's so much there. Ha- I think it's it's changed and changing, and I'm thankful for that and um i should do a lot more creating and changing with it than pointing fingers and criticizing it but you know to to a degree like um obviously we you know there's a solution that we believe in but but there's plenty of times where um there's conflict and and um, you don't see or feel or hear that solution. You know you should. And I think there's a lot of guys in, uh, you know, Bazan's one of them, one of a ton of them. It was just easier to be able to, to write from that place. And um, now when it comes to where Christian music is, it's, you know, back then, like, I think, um, um Let's see, I, they, you could you could really tell, like you know, in, in the mid two thousands, what was what was happening. Um, there was a, there was a lot of. The, I had a meeting with a, one of the biggest independent distributors one time um, at at uh, the gospel gospel music week one time, and they were telling me um, at that point, by rule, they would always say that the Christian music industry is 10 years behind the mainstream sure, industry. Yeah. So, which, you know, so you could, you could time it by about 10 years and they were like, listen, in 10 years, worship is going to be the biggest thing. It's going to be the absolute biggest thing. 
Um, and at that point, like rap was huge. Like, I mean, it still is, but Christian rap had, had really kind of taken, it's starting to take it some steps forward. But, um, but the thing was, is all of a sudden, you know, worship comes in and which was funny for, you know, which is cool for me because, you know, there wasn't anything at that point. It was just, we were all kind of like, you know, kind of strumming away on Laura, lift your name on high. And then you know, <laughs> right, Sonic yeah. Flood and Jeff Deo and some other of these guys came and started changing some things. And they're like, I don't know. We just thought it'd be cool to do this. We weren't like trying to do anything and opened the door for a lot of, you know, the new era, the new wave of of worship. And so to this point, you know, you have an entire industry, you know, and the Christian music industry, like literally almost shut down overnight to some degree. Like, like you couldn't write anything that wasn't outwardly corporate worship. If you did, um, you know, maybe a few songs, but we're going to throw, you need to, you need to throw some, some, you know, A&R was pushing, like you need to throw some, um, some worship stuff on here so that, um, or, you know, we need to get some royalties. We need to get some money moving because the money had dried up as well. It's really crazy to see um, Christian bands like Third Day is a great example of a Christian band who they were compared to everything from Hootie and the Blowfish to Pearl Jam and mm. um, made some really kick butt records. Uh, their second album, Conspiracy Number no. Five, which is like total grunge, Pearl Jam, awesome record, followed it up with um, essentially worship music, and that, Offerings. Yeah. and that that was the music that um, even though they were getting airplay before that, that was the music that kind of captured people's attention. Yeah. Why? Why? Why do you think that shift happened? Well, I think people were, I, th- I think it's, I mean, that shift was cool, but I think what, so worship think music, what happened, worship music existed before that though. Like it, why it, it did, why at that point was there such an opportunity to get into the worship music movement? Well, I think the chasm between um, what worship sounded like in churches and what um, what pop, popular music sounded like it was the chasm was gigantic, and a lot of churches got more. Um, they got smarter. They got more focused on people who were far from God, who they weren't just trying to play to the people who were in the pews, but like, hey, culturally, we need to be a little bit more relevant. And people started thinking that way. Church leadership started to blow up. Church resources and leadership books and organizations started to blow up. And that, you know, I, all those things kind of worked in tandem. And they're like, we need to make our, you know, music sound like everything else. Like pe- what people are, mu- why should they come in here and like, you know, be okay with singing to, you know, an organ and a piano player and a, you know, a, a singer that can't sing. Like, why can't, why can't we work towards these things to be more culturally relevant? And all those things were huge. Um, the interesting thing though, to, um, to take notice as we've gotten smarter in church leadership, church attendance has still continued to the, its decline. Now, right, yeah. The um now that's not to say that there you know there that isn't hasn't been profitable and we haven't gotten smarter about things and all because we have and there's been there's been you know um, tons of people that have 
you know, thousands of people that have gotten saved and come into the kingdom, on, you know, um, because of all that. But the, I'm, I'm literally, I'm starting to really bunny trail, but no, no, this um, is good stuff. It's, it's, just, it's just funny to me. That's just that that has happened. Like, you know, there's, you know, people are sounding the alarm that, you know, the average church attender now, I think we talked about it is goes to church once every four weeks in those, in those times before that, it wasn't like that. You know what I mean? It, it was, you know, three out of four, two out of four. And it's just every five years seems to decline. But right around like after, t- after the, you know, like, you know, the market crash to 2008, 2009, things started to really, really dry up even in the, in the Christian industry, sort of streaming and all that other stuff, you know what I mean? Um, physical units and, and all those CD sales and all that stuff. And, um, uh, the market, um, it wasn't just the secular market. They, they didn't know how to kind of curve into that as far as business is concerned, um, or take advantage of that. But, at the same time, you have this massive worship movement going on, and I was always a huge fan of, like, I still am. Like, the best worship songs come from the houses, like the houses of worship, not some guy who tours nonstop um, and, and only goes to church maybe once or twice a month. He's doing worship shows the rest yeah, of the time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's just, you know, and that's kind of manufactured in a in a writer's room, but, uh, you know, the best, you know, songs of worship of declaration come from the heart of the house, like of the heart of that church. What is this church walking through? What's the, the, the heartbeat, the pulse of that church? Like what is, what's going on out of that comes some of the best, most authentic writing. And, um, that wasn't happening then, or it, it hadn't hit mainstream. And now that's, that's all that you hear. Um, everything, everything. And, um, which is, it's cool, which is one of the coolest things. But the interesting thing is, is it's hit a place in the past few years where that's all you can write. That's all you can sing. That's all you can put on your record. And I even, you know, I know guys, I know studio musicians that are, you know, in Nashville that are session players that are like, Hey man, like, we're thankful to have a job and stuff and play every day, but like, maybe can we do something else besides worship? Like, I just, I'm just tired of playing the same thing <laughs> like over and over again. Right. And here's the question. Um, like, are you tired of playing the same thing as a worship leader? Um, like, and, and I've often wondered, you know, like, does it, does it suck for the Rolling Stones to get up on stage and play songs <laughs> that they've been playing for 50 years and still like act like they're into it because this is the first time that a lot of people have heard it live, right? So you got to yeah. be into that. But how is it for you as a worship leader to to do these songs that not only you know by heart, but you hear on the radio and, and worship's kind of the thing you know, this is something that that not only are you rehearsing a few times a week and playing a few times a week, but it's something that, like, you you know so intimately that it could get kind of boring. Like, how do you reconcile that? Well, I think I'm in a different spot than 
some of those guys like I, I like bottom line it's a it's a privilege to lead people into worship and to do what I do and to um, be able to play music and and just see um, what happens when um, when people come to Jesus and how their lives change and all of those things like that's a privilege like bottom line creatively and musically um, like I'm at a spot where I haven't done what I wanted to do or have wanted to do in like creatively where like I should be I should have written X amount of albums right now you know I should have written X amount of songs now like you and me both man yeah like I like there has been plenty of times where um like I I was there's this thing there was just times where I just was like I can't I can't write this I you know I'm not going to add to a bunch of mediocre songs like I can't bring myself to to do that and add to like I'm like um some songs that are already mediocre right I'm not going to add to that and so you know there's been plenty of songs Christian or not that I haven't uh, released and haven't done yet. And like, so that's still on the horizon for me as far as like playing the same things. Like people will be like, you know, like we are literally a glorified cover band and a lot of worship leaders will disagree. And they're like, you're not a cover band. Like you can, you're going to like, no dude, like we are a cover band by definition. We did not write these songs. We, maybe we approach them a little bit differently and like the tones aren't the same and all that. You're but, cool with that. Uh, though. Like we are, Oh, it's recognizing what the church needs to a certain degree. Not saying the church needs a cover band, but the church needs, um, to, you know, it, it works in tandem with what is um, popular as far as like um, and what what how the spirit of God is working through certain songs. Like there's a reason why there's a reason why Hillsong is Hillsong. Right. There's a reason why is because it's been a movement and they've been able to capture um, hearts, the heart of their house and the song of their house. It's been able to resonate with churches around the globe and um also they're pretty dang good songwriters when it comes to that sense and you know not everybody's that good so being able to put words to things that other churches can or maybe they don't have the resources or whatever the situation is um those it's you know you can't you can't argue with that that's it's 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 a movement right um and to me um, being able to facilitate that and help that and see what music can do and songs can do, um, even if I didn't write the song, is cool with me. Now it doesn't, I, I like it. It doesn't fulfill me completely when um, I didn't write the song, um, and all of those things. So you know, there's there's part of me that isn't fulfilled in that the creative part of me that is um I didn't write those songs and there are songs in me that obviously wouldn't be appropriate for Sunday morning sure. or church in general yeah. that that I haven't you know played in and released and all those other things so there's you know 
So there's a, I, I think that those lines need to be drawn. Um, and as far as where worship is, like after 2007, 8, 9, wherever it was, the, the Christian music was struggling to even stay afloat. Um, so when they saw, you know, just a lightning rod that worship was, I mean, they just started pushing it, pushing it, pushing it and playing it. People were receptive to it. That's why K-Love has been playing the same 15 songs, you know, for the last 10 years. Um, that's why, like, I mean, like there's, there's some on there. And by the way, if you're, you have to be on a major Christian label to get that kind of promotion on and yeah, airplay yeah. on on um and Christian radio and all that and there's and, and there's even some them, breakthrough even, there's, though right like there's there's a, there's a little there is there is there's a little bit I mean I think one of the things that you saw and I think it's starting to swing backwards and I don't know how long it's going to take but um you you see what Lauren Daigle did you know and what she is doing. And that is something that isn't worship. And she's a Christian artist. And by the way, she was a worship leader. I don't know if she still leads or whatever. She was on Ellen. She was had massive success and she came under fire for blah, 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 which is just a bunch of garbage and people behind hiding behind their computers. But, and you know, I, she's going to do, she's done more for the kingdom in the past, you know, two months than all of those people combined will do in their entire lifetime. So pipe down, but I think, I, I I think that, uh, I think that you, that's the beginning of like a whole different thing. And, and, you know, I think there's going to be a lot more room moving forward and, and that's, and couple that with, the music industry in general and how you can go and Christian, secular, whatever you want to call it, mainstream or not, you can go directly to the artists. Now it's a different world. It's a different world and the market will always win. The market is going to win. Right. And yeah, there's still radio. There's still all of those things. And those guys are still going to get pushed and all those other things, but the market will win. It just will. Um, and that's just going to become more and more evident as you know, the next few years. What do you see in terms of Christians, like not necessarily Christian artists, but Christians who are making music? I think of, um, one of the most popular bands right now, uh, 21 pilots who are, um, essentially grew up the same way that you did the same way that I did. And, are making music for the masses. People love them. People buy their records, uh, not because they're Christians, but because they make good music. Is there still a place for Christians who aren't making worship music or aren't even making Christian music to make good music? Is there still a place for that? Yeah, there's, I mean, it's just going to continue to get bigger and, um, I think the people who connect with their fans the best and who are, you know, I think those are the people that are going to come out on top. Um, I love the fact that um, you have guys like that that are making music that they wanted to make, that they didn't, they weren't like forced into, you know, they're forced into this mold. And the and worship, like there's a, there's a mold of worship leaders that is, 
that people are forced into. Like, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to look like this. I want you to play like this. And there's some people that are going to be take that. And there's some people that are just like, hey, can we just like play? Can we just, can you not guilt me because I'm, I'm not preaching the gospel in every song? Um, I, I think about, um, you know, everybody reveres Lewis and all that and everything he did wasn't, you know, um, necessarily an outward, you know, preaching of the gospel. And that's just that age old art thing, you know, that Christian art thing and, and all of those, you know, that whole conversation and all that. But I, I love the fact that there's guys that are going out and they're just like, we're just going to make music. Um, or we're confident in, we're confident in who God has made us to produce the art that he has put inside of us and not in what you think the art should be look like, sound like, play like, feel like, um, and not what you think is going to strike gold really, really quickly. Um, but I, I love that. I think, I think it's awesome. I, I think it's just going to become bigger and bigger. And, the, you know, there's a few guys that laid the way for that. And Christian radio has become so desperate that they have gone from playing, you know, strictly Christian music to like, let's play the fray because they say they're Christians. Um, right. Let's, let's play some U2 because they, because Bono says, says, he quoted a few scriptures, right? Let's play. So you got like that. And that's, to me, that just is, that's so, it's just, you know what, dude, like you're literally trying to stay afloat. <laughs> like you, you're, that's where yeah. that is. You're so desperate at this point. Um, why don't you look at your freaking programming? How about that? How about look at what you're playing and what people want to hear instead of like redraw, you know, grasping for straws and like, you know, we're going to play, play one of the biggest bands and, and, you know, ever and see if we can get, you know, you know, convince people that we're not playing like, you know, you know, the third day album from 1992. Right. So I, uh, or, I, I was reading this piece the other day. It's called why Christian movies are so terrible. And, um, and it's like kind of a bulleted list of why Christian movies are so terrible because they are. Um, <laughs> and the, the first one is the uh, first bullet point. Christian movies are not made by artists, but propagandists. And I, I, but it's, but it's, it's true. So <laughs> that's one of the funniest things that I've actually heard. I haven't seen that list. It says, we always wondered why there weren't any more C.S. Lewis's or G.K. Chesterton's around. The truth is there were. They just weren't writing for the Christian market because that market does not want art that communicates truth, but art that is being used by a message. Right? Mm. So, So, like, there's a distinction between art being for art's sake, um as a Christian and then art being used to push a certain message. And I don't necessarily think that like the message that it's pushing is bad. Right. Uh, I don't think I'll put it this way. I don't think that anybody who is in the industry of making Christian art thinks that they're doing anything that's destructive or 
the antithesis of bringing God's kingdom to earth, right? Like they're, they're not trying to do that, but, uh, yeah, I think there's a point here that art does need to be art, not absent of Christ, but in the fullness of Christ, um, that doesn't necessarily need to be, um, missional or the word that I like to use is, is transactional. It doesn't need to, there doesn't need to be a transaction there for it to stand on its own as art. I, I think there's a lot of points in here. Like one, uh, like uh, aside from the obvious quality differences, I mean, I, I've seen a lot can be said about that. Listen, listen, they made Napoleon Dynamite for, like, nothing, and it went, you know, it, it became a cult classic, right? Come on. And, like, there's a plenty of Christian Christian movies that have a bigger budget than Napoleon Dynamite and other yep. things that, yep. that they could do a ton better. So aside from, like, the obvious, like, we're not going to put much of an effort in. And, it's, and by the way, I have friends that are Christian actors. It's not, that's not a blanket statement. It's just there's a, there's a, a lot of them that need to be rethinking things, right? Two, um, because they're so afraid of backlash, because they're so afraid of, of, um, like the war on morals, like on morality or whatever, they would, they would, they would like to just whitewash life to the point of it's not even relatable. Like there's truth for a reason, right? There's truth because there was, because before there was brokenness and lies. That's why truth is right. There's, you can't, you can't have, everything is just not truth. So if there's no conflict, then, then, then what is the point of truth? If there wasn't death and, and darkness, what is the point of truth? So what, when you leave that out of, of, of art and you leave that out of a situation is like, and pretend there's only truth, nobody can relate. So and, here's, here's a line from this uh, column. Again, it's from the website for the church. That's ftc.co. Um, Christian movies are more akin to propaganda than art. Because they begin with wanting to communicate some Christian theme, the power of prayer, the power of believing, the power of something. And then the story is crafted around that message. This is true even when the story is something based on a real-life incident. Delving into the depths of human character and motivation is subservient to getting the message across. This is why so much of the dialogue in Christian movies violates the classic writing proverb, show, don't tell. Yeah. Yeah, it's really funny. What do you think as as a writer, as somebody, as a you know, as a journalist? What is what? What's your take on that? Yeah, it's to use a grand term. It's funny. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny to me because um, that's not the way that you write, or that's not the way that I've been trained to write. Um, essentially, when I'm writing a piece when I'm writing for something or somebody that's not myself, um, I take their view and their story into account. And that's what I write. I write what their story is. Um, and I don't write with a presupposition. I don't write with the idea that this is where the story is going to lead. The story is going to lead wherever the story needs to lead. 
that's where it's going to go. And mm-hmm. and I'm I'm very sensitive to that. I'm very sensitive to the idea that the story has to go where the story needs to go without having um, any inclination that this is the narrative that I want to tell. And so you kind of have to detach yourself a little bit. You have to detach yourself from um, what your impressions are of the people who are telling the story, what your impressions are of the story that's being told. And you have to say, you know what, like, I'm just the narrator. I'm not the person who's making the story. I'm the person who's telling the story. And that that can be a difficult practice because we all have our own biases and we all have our own inclinations and we all have our own ideas about the way that uh, a story should happen. We're, we're built with this. We are built with the idea that this is the way that a narrative should go. Once upon a time, something happens and then happily ever after. And that's, mm-hmm. that's like the trope, Right. Mm-hmm. And you have to decouple yourself from that trope in order to tell the story that needs to be tell needs to be told. So, yeah. Um, yeah so, a, as a writer, it's interesting to me that when it comes to Christian movies in particular, but maybe art that calls itself Christian in general, that. Um, before the story or before the melody or before the the thing that makes the thing a thing right yeah yeah um that there needs to be some um point or moral attached to it that's very strange to me it's a very strange way to write it's a very strange way to make music and and it's odd to me that um that christian art in my mind needs to be sometimes manipulative to get that point across if that makes hmm. any sense to you yeah yeah i think it's a good way to put it and i do think things are changing though i think in what way like tell us well There's not a gatekeeper. There's the, the gatekeepers are a lot. There's not a there's not a gatekeeper. Um, you know, uh, trying to keep everybody safe from some kind of PR disaster. Um, in all areas, I think just being able to, dis- to distribute openly is going to keep encouraging people to do that. To you know to write more authentically and not um, scared. I mean, in those, you know, in, in those days, like back in the day, you know, they, you had somebody at the top being like, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're literally not going to communicate anything but absolute certainty in all things. And have you um, seen the movie Ragamuffin about uh, Rich Mullins? I haven't seen that movie. No, I do really want to see it. It's, it's really good stuff. And uh, yeah. he comes up against that um, even, what, 30 years ago. Came up against yeah. that with um, 
I forget the record label that he was on, but they were like, you need to be writing more explicit Christian truths. And he's like, that's not the way that I write. And then Amy Grant comes in and she's like, I want to do this song. And they're like, well, you're already kind of the, the stereotypical Christian pop star. If you want to do it, then maybe this kind of thing is okay. Mm Hmm. Yeah. It's really, yeah. I, 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 I do, I just do, I do have a lot of confidence though, moving forward that the, the best is going to rise to the top. Like it will, it, it will like the, the things that people resonate with will rise to the top. Um, it's going to take, it's going to continue to take time. That's why I think that worship has done what it's done. Um, because there's so many churches that have been able to be so, um, be able to produce their own stuff and have the resources to do that. And even then, like just the way the writing has changed in the last three years. Um, and you know, and it's funny cause pastors are, you know, concerned about it. Like, you know, so concerned about this, you know, if it, is this too masculine? Is this too feminine? Is this too, you know, those, those are always conversations and yeah, there's plenty of places for that. And I, you know, and you want to be cognizant of, you know, um, listen, most of the people in churches are women and, but we want to, we want men to come in. So we're going to write a little bit more masculine. So it appeals with them. And, um, uh, so they, they feel connected to the music and, you know, I like, it's, we can, we can draw those lines a lot. We totally can. Um, so where do you, but, uh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I just, uh, no, nah, go ahead. So where do you decide as a pastor and a worship leader, like this is, this is where we're really going to go for men's hearts right now? Or is that even a conversation? Um, I think those conversations always happen. I think when you're in like it, as far as a worship leader is concerned, um, you're not going to use a lot of, um, or, or a, a worship writer and a worship leader. Um, you're not going to use a lot of terms that men are going to be like, what? Like there's this song called, um, there's a song that has a lyric. Um, um, I want to sit at your feet drink from the cup in your hands, lean back against you and breathe, feel your heartbeat, right? Talking about Jesus. Um, this love is so deep. Um, it's more than I can stand. I melt in your peace, I think. It's overwhelming. Like, that is definitely not something that a man would sing and come up with. Yeah, yeah. Um I had to leave that song one time, um, and I, I only because I, I it was on the list and I had to do it um, because they were doing it at another campus. And I'm I'm not going to like I don't ever pick that song unless a, I don't ever pick that song anymore anyway. But my 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 qualm then it still is it's like I don't want to lean up against Jesus and feel his heartbeat. Sure. Like it's just that's not. <laughs> And I, I'm going to bet that most men are not going to want that either. Um, 
And when you're talking about going after men's hearts, I think there's a lot of things that you can do. I, I think that there's a lot of men that are turned off by worship because of like the, um, the outward emotional, some of the outward emotional stuff that goes that people see and observe in churches. And it's just like, do I need to do that? Is like, that's what worship is. And, and there's tons of misconceptions and misunderstandings when it comes to that. But, um, like I, I think that there are plenty of other ways besides worship that you can connect with a man's heart and, um, and all of those things. And, um, that's a definitely a longer conversation for sure. But, um, I, I I think when, I think when you tend to focus on like the outward emotional pieces of some like expressions of worship, I think that, you know, I mean, you tell me, we talk about it all the time. Yeah. Right. I think, um, Man, I think that we should talk about it on our next podcast. I think that oh, we yeah, should talk about uh, worship and emotions and masculinity and, and <laughs> how masculinity plays into um, our capacity or ability or inability to worship because it's something that I think about frequently. Um, hmm. And yeah, I think we have a good tease for, for the next episode. Yeah, that sounds good to me. So, closing out here, what are you listening to? What are you watching? What are you interested in? Um, I'm listening to... Um, oh, I recently, actually, you know what's funny? I recently switched carriers to Sprint. And um, Sprint is not sponsoring this program. But... Nobody um, sponsors no, this program, but if you want to, just let us know. <laughs> <laughs> but what comes with Sprint, interestingly enough, is Hulu and uh, nice. Title, and you get free free lifetime for both, which is pretty cool. Um, so there's been like a lot of old like '90s shows I've been binging on. Like literally, I've I've been I've been I'm not lying to you. I must have watched. Um, with Rebecca, maybe like 10 episodes of Family Matters. There's um, nothing wrong with that. Uh, which so, is d- look, awesome. Reginald Bell Johnson, who played Carl Winslow, once replied <laughs> uh-huh. to one of my tweets. That's did he really? A, oh, he seriously did. That's like one, oh, of my, one of my favorite things that has ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. Dude, that and um, I saw Hanging with Mr. Cooper is actually on Cooper. Hulu, so I'm going after that next. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so yeah, so it's it's actually been a lot of um, it's it's I've been binging on like old '90s stuff, which is that um, is awesome. Totally, that TGIF I, stuff. TGIF stuff. Um, I I had this I had this overwhelming urge to go listen to one of the older Craig's Brother punk albums from nice. Two like so bizarre man I like they just come out of nowhere like sometimes I'm like I need to listen to Slick Shoes right now yeah yeah and I just do it and I, <laughs> I don't awesome. know I don't know what it is it just I don't know what it is I, I don't I don't know if it's like because you have the like an entire catalog of whatever you want at your fingertips 
dude, this year you and I have to make some music together. There's a New Year's resolution for you. There you go. That sounds good to me. Awesome. I'm I'm down with that. So I just, uh, I know it's an old book. Well, it's not an old book. It came out a couple of years ago. Um, I was really depressed the other day, and I'm like, I need to get out of my head. So I'm going to read something. And um, in that day, I read this book called In a Dark, Dark Wood by Ruth Ware. It's uh, sort of an Agatha Christie-esque um, pseudo-murder novel, but even saying that <laughs> might give too much away. Um, I enjoyed it. Apparently, Reese Witherspoon is making it into a movie or wants to make it into a movie. It was very fun. I enjoyed it. That's nice. been... That and uh, because I'm a dad and I love playing video games. I In the past, I was a gamer. I can't do that now, but hmm. I've been playing uh, the new Super Smash Brothers on the no Nintendo Switch. Yeah, yeah, and I love it, and it's awesome. So those are I've – been, I've been reading that Ruth Ware book. I'm done with it. It was really good. And then in the meantime, I've been playing Super Smash Brothers, and I kill it. I'm awesome. Brilliant. It's brilliant. Brilliant. Brilliant recommendations. I love them. All right, dude. Hey, thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you next time. Take care, guys. Love work. Love work.